going to talk about um, next week, we're going to talk about SPM PLPL, which is being relaunched, but we still haven't sent a prize uh, to the previous uh, winner of the SPM PLPL Finch. because of lockdown and all sorts of issues with that um, and the fact that I'm not allowed to send or, well, actually go round because it just so happens that our winner is based in South Manchester, which is rather useful, but we are locked down. So apologies for that. But also, does anybody have anything that they might be able to contribute to the, the, the hall uh, is, of prizes? Is our winner not Chinch? Chinch is not the winner. Our winner is me. <laughs> well, you are, uh, you are the overall winner. On a weekly basis. Mm. Um, so, Roy, do you have any misters that are doing the rounds? That I have no idea where any, where any of my stuff is. <laughs> I, have, I have not been living in my own house for six months, um, the, which explains my dark mood. Um, I have two suggestions. I, I, I have a number of signed books that were, were gifted to me by, by friends and colleagues and, and people who for some reason thought that I might be able to plug their books in public <laughs> that I have read and no longer need. So I can send a, a couple of signed books or Kate is on at me fairly consistently to get rid of my big pile of football shirts, most of which have been washed. So I could... Um, <laughs> Just I pick could, one that has been. I could pick one that I don't want anymore. Well, that's an excellent... I never play football. That's an excellent contribution. Chinch, will you be able to donate all of your England caps? I've got, I've got two. I'm, I can have one of them. Because I only really need one. It kind of makes the point, doesn't it? And it will do for my uh, for, you know, my children. When I'm dead and gone, they can prove that I play for England. Oh, they are selling that. Cap. They are <laughs> selling, selling that. They won't cap. sell it. Why they've, would they sell it? They're getting too much the in the world. There's no way they'll need to sell it. No, they won't. They'll keep we, it. They'll cherish do, it. Do we know who our winner supports? Nikki's just said they'll sell it. Don't <laughs> they sell it? <laughs> they won't. They love me too much. No, they'll sell it. They are Manchester-based, so um, uh, actually, I, I would imagine one of the two Manchester clubs, but I do not know. If it's Manchester United, I might be able to help. Uh, so Stephen can contribute something, Rory can contribute something, which is probably not at all related, but uh, of value, uh, nevertheless. I'm sure I've got, to, I think I've got a Howard Kendall autobiography that's signed to Alan Green, the BBC commentator, that I could possibly uh, throw in the, throw if, in the it's, if it's Manchester City, I have got not one, not two, but three Manchester City away shirts from recent years with my name on the back, most of which are slightly too tight. Oh, well, because you surname, played. Is our, is our winner's surname Smith? In which case, that's an <laughs> excellent point. Imagine turning up to five a side on a, on a Thursday night, could be a Wednesday, who knows, with a. Just those two options. A, a never worn, because it's a bit too tight, Manchester City shirt with somebody else's name on the back and an inexplicable number. I think there's. It's What's not the number? Only, I think one is 14, one is 21, and one might be 23. You could claim to be ahead of the times, couldn't you? Oh, there's a kid coming through the system <laughs> called Smith. Wait a minute. He's going to be the next big thing. 14, Thierry Henry. 23, no. David Beckham. What's the other number? 20, 21. 21. David Silva. David Silva. You don't really fit any of those. Well, he would do if what did it Jamie wasn't a Pollock, What did Jamie Pollock wear? <laughs> I, don't, I think I that's don't, what you should really go I for. I think more importantly, Chinch, is that I don't fit into the shirt. <laughs> that's the bigger problem. <laughs> this is Set Piece Benny, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, I don't want to miss a thing, Rory Smith, Walk This Way, and Andy Hinchcliffe, Dude Looks Like a Lady. The food is... Chinch, what have you been having for lunch? You've been, uh, you've been ah, polishing now it off then. over the course of the last couple of minutes. It's, you, you know fine well how amazing the cooking is at Chateau Chinch. Nikki's an amazing cook. I'm an amazing cook. Carly <laughs> has now proved herself as well. She has made a cake, and I'll give you all a guess. You've all got one guess as to one of the ingredients. There's three ingredients in the tremendous cake that she's made. So, Hugh, can you guess one of the ingredients? Parsnip. No. Rory. Blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> That's three. That always goes one. into Carly's <laughs> cakes. An actual, I'll give you a clue, a vegetable. Oh, courgette. No. Stephen. Rhubarb. You're brilliant at this game, aren't you? No, you're all completely wrong. It is banana, avocado, and lime. Should and it is, avocado. And it is sublime. Can we I have, can, can tell we, you. Can you show us a 18 slice? slices. <laughs> Nikki, is there a slice that I could show? That, are you eating it all, you fat cow? <laughs> oh, my God. What? Put the knife down. Put the bread knife pressed. down. It was Steve. <laughs> Steve made me do it. And you like Steve. You don't Ging you don't like the other two, but you Ging Ging illustrating his uh, generational issues. She had a bread knife. She had a bread knife. Uh, so the food is delectable, but currently yep. just about to be thrown in Chinch's it's face. Coming, it's coming, it's coming Correct. this way, I think. Yep. Uh, so, Chinch, yep. as it arrives, can you tell us what we're talking about today? Uh, no. 
We're talking about fans, the lack thereof, and what we've realised about football while they're not there. The grand forced experiment is by no means over, but we have reached a suitable point of reflection, having watched those domestic and European competitions that restarted reach their conclusion. And whether it's how the players have reacted or how we've consumed the games from home, have we drawn some conclusions that we might not have expected? Or, as Ander Herrera said after the Champions League final, is it just it's here. The cake is here. Here is the cake. Oh, goodness me. It's a good cake. It's a loaf. It's a loaf. It's a loaf. But in essence, no, it's a cake. It's a cake. It's not a loaf. It's not breadish at all. It is so, cake. So, Chinch, you know last week you, um, you tore apart a nine-year-old's grammar. So you have asked Rightly us to so, guess, though, to guess yeah. the vegetable that is in mm -hmm. a cake whilst yeah. then subsequently naming two out of the three ingredients as being fruits. Mm -hmm. And then when it's, it's avocado. Avocado, it avocado is a vegetable. Out, it's, no, all three it out it's a loaf. Avocado is not a vegetable. I think so. Right, so they're all fruits. Don't Google it. You either know or you don't. You're Googling so it, Rory. You're not allowed to excellent. do that. If, it was a brilliant, gone... brilliant preamble quiz that you gave. Well, what did you, well, but what did you say was in my cake, Steve? But I would have gone with banana if you hadn't said vegetable because there's all, they're, they're, on a couple of occasions, there's been a very banoffee feeling mm. to things that we've had a banoffee cheesecake. Yeah, we've had yeah. a banoffee pie. So I was mm. going to go with banana, but no, you said name the vegetable. I mean, this is, this is making me miss Nikki's cooking extraordinarily. Mm. But, um, I, also, I, I wouldn't have gone with banana, Steve, because a banana is a relatively obvious ingredient for a, a loaf, tray, bake, or cake. Avocado, now that's different, but it's definitely not a vegetable. It's, it's a delicious, it's a delicious vegetable. It really is avocado. I love uh, it. Spoiler alert. in the ground. Uh, Chinch is responsible for more quizzing a little bit later on, and mm. uh, I would suggest that the uh, the example that he has set so far is not one uh, that makes us look forward to what is to come. Uh, so, uh, email if you would like, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Don't forget our YouTube channel. Please do subscribe. Claude McNaughton is in London, which, given our conversation over the last few weeks, is a place with something of an underwhelming name. Dear Hugh and Co, says Claude, having listened to your podcast for a while now, I have consistently enjoyed your select 11 episodes. The most recent one on elite players who became elite managers was no different. I was wondering whether an 11 of great players but terrible pundits might be due. While I accept the chinch may be reluctant to compromise their profession, his professionalism, I'm sure the others have some very strong opinions on certain commentators. I wonder if Stephen is happy to do the same thing about compromising his professionalism. I was impressed by the lack of nuance, for example, of Steve McManaman during the match between PSG and Leipzig. His endless use of analogies, my favourite, it's the old chicken and the egg situation and do they stick or twist, was head-bangingly superficial. If great players are given massive managerial jobs without the experience or success, as you discussed, then the same is clearly true for pundits. Love the pod. Claude from London, who, we should say, expresses his own views, not necessarily the views of the podcast regarding Steve McManaman, uh, the public ones anyway. Um, so with that in mind, we might have to politely decline Claude's suggestion for a select 11, unless anybody wants to be unprofessional. Uh, there's lots of ways that we can compromise our professionalism. I don't feel like this is, uh, this, this is necessary. We do it all the time anyway. Ginchy must be head-bangingly superficial on a match-by-match -match basis. Um, yeah, I base my broadcasting on that. <laughs> Yeah, the chicken and the egg situation. That, that's, that's, I wonder what he was describing there or trying to describe there. Chinch, mm. out of the chicken and the egg, which one's the vegetable? <laughs> um, the chicken. It's avocado. It's avocado, a fruit. I'm still on my mind, but I don't care what he said during this pod. That has blown my mind. I thought if the stone was in the middle, it's a fruit, and that's how it works. Um, Kenny Maddock has emailed to say this. Dear Steve, Hugh, Rory, and Ian Decatur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Indicator. I just, I just wanted to drop you all the note to update you on my situation. You may, may remember that I emailed you a little while ago with my origin story and to thank Chinch for the Life After Football podcast, which was during my epic sprint of listening to your entire back catalogue. He says in brackets, a lot quicker than you and might I add, I just wish I'd thought about a way to get Buffalo status out of it. This was after I'd been told that my job was being made redundant and the prospect of unemployment loomed large over me and my family. Thankfully, I've moved into a secondment with another company until March of next year, so things are looking relatively positive for the moment, and I appreciate just how lucky I have been given the situation many of my colleagues and friends have found themselves in. 
On to the football. While listening to a recent podcast, there was a brief discussion of different club men, and it made me think of a question, what defines a club man? This is something, in my mind anyway, which is distinctly separate from a one-club man, in that a player could be a club man for more than one team. An example which brings to mind would be Andrea Pirlo. You could argue that he has been a club man for both AC Milan and Juventus, although he's probably now more sided to the latter, given his recent appointment. Dirk Kaut is another. He embodied the style, nature, and desire of a player at Utrecht, Feyenoord, twice, and Liverpool. Some might argue that this is basically something anyone could be as long as they're an efficient, well-disciplined, and true professional. I would disagree, however. Not every professional footballer truly brings to life the passion and desire that fans want to see oozing from one of their players. What are your thoughts? Oh, and a question for Rory. Is lemon soda as good as lemon Fanta or better? Regards, Kenny Maddock. Kenny, Kenny, Kenny. It's not even a competition. It's, I mean, lemon soda is, is God's nectar. It's Lemon Fanta's nice. You're on a beach, it's sunny, you have a Lemon Fanta. Who wants an orange Fanta? It's cloying, it's too sweet. Lemon Fanta, much more refreshing. It's a good drink. Lemon soda is, I mean, can you even characterise lemon soda as, as a drink? It's a liquid, it's definitely a liquid. Is it a vegetable? It's not, it's not <laughs> it's a, a vegetable. One of the best carbonated drinks made out of a vegetable. <laughs> it, it is, it is. I mean, if someone can get me some at any point, to injected directly into my face then that would be that would be a dream lemon Fame. soda is the greatest thing on earth uh, kenny by the way obviously went through the back catalogue so quickly and quicker than you and Hague that he forgot about spm 128 which was all about being a club man but it's an interesting point to make about whether we should differentiate between a club man and a one club man i've always been interested in whether football has an equivalent of the cricketing good tourist which is a really important concept in cricket, where they have to spend far too much time together and are playing quite a boring sport. Uh, but the, that's a joke. I like cricket. The, um, not like rugby union. Um, <laughs> what an awful sport. The, um, Move on. <laughs> the, um, the, just kicking it. Just kicking it. It's, so, it's just dull. There's, anyway. there's no throwing at all in rugby, is there? No, no it's all kicking. Kicking then sort of, then just, you know, sort of getting in really close having at a cuddle mm. at crotch level and cuddling. Yeah. So you're saying a sport is improved by having less kicking in it? No, that's absolutely not <laughs> yes, what I'm okay, saying. Okay, careful. Um, I've completely lost my thread. What was I going to say? You always lose your thread when you have oh, to yeah. diss rugby union. Yes. The <laughs> you you dislike it so much that you just drift off <laughs> into some <laughs> other dimension where you assume seemingly you've sort of sent yourself off to a place where it doesn't even exist all i'm thinking about is, is how much i hate rugby union <laughs> negative reverie <laughs> the um the no but so in cricket being a good source is really important because you've got to spend so much time together but i think there probably is an equivalent in football of being yeah maybe a club a club man a club figure is which is distinct from a one club person because you can you can take those qualities that make you a good member of the club to a different club. Dirk Kaut's quite an example. You know, he was this kind of fire lord icon that was equally beloved at Liverpool. And I think, they, I suspect they are quite rare, to be honest. But it's, it's, it's like a mixture between like loyalty. You have to be, you can't be too good at football, which maybe would count against Pirlo. Um, I think you have to be kind of honest and industrious and hardworking and really seem to, it's, it's like a quality of getting it, isn't it? And, but also being quite nice. The, Could the flip, have we stumbled onto a select 11 potential? Mm, yeah. So is, uh, is Gary Neville a one-club man or a club man? He's a one-club man. A one-club. Not, sure, not sure that Gary Neville necessarily embodied all of the positive qualities that okay. United fans adored. I think they thought he was a little bit chippy at times. I mean, that was obviously one of their own. But no, it's someone... Count is a good example. Um, I mean, Milner would maybe have echoes of it. Someone who kind of creates a... Helps to create an atmosphere of professionalism and industry and excellence, I think is what you're looking for. James Miller's been a one-club man at about eight clubs. Exactly. <laughs> Which, Which makes him a club man, although he, he's, he's not necessarily liked by Manchester City because of what he said when he left. So th there, there are those, those mitigating circumstances. You've got to comport yourself in the right way off the field relating to that club, as well as being the industrious, wholehearted player for that club on the field as well. What about Peter Atherton? What about Peter Atherton? <laughs> Uh... Would that be the title of your autobiography? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's what people say when they start reading the book. We need they... to talk about Peter. Uh, one club man. In terms of a one club man. No, in terms of like a club man. Club man. He, he, kind of, uh... he was that kind of just. He was just there. I think every team. club, every club needs a Peter Atherton. Every club a kind of dependable, a man. solid, responsible. Which is probably what 
well, it depends on the club, doesn't it? What what a club stands for and what it means that that individual changes. But yeah, for I suppose for for a Sheffield club, Sheffield Wednesday, Peter was absolutely the right man. Yeah, and you'd say the same about Bradford, wouldn't you? But I, I just wonder, can you have a oh, chinches onto his? Why have you had the loaf before the sandwich? Ooh, he's doing a Lewandowski. He's doing I'm a having, Lewandowski. I'm having a backwards backwards lunch. Robert Lewandowski eats his food the wrong way around. Does he? All, he all, the, the, all the great first. stars do. Yeah, all the great stars <laughs> there do. There's so he, many things that, uh, that I would uh, draw start a Start with an after eight mints, then have a cup of coffee, then have your <laughs> banoffee pie. Then Where's have the cigar? Coffee, then have your, oh yes, cigar, <laughs> after eight mints. <laughs> She's going to be on the aperitif by the time we get to the soccer story. I've got, I've got a feeling that you start your, uh, your evening in your smoking jacket and work your way back to your tuxedo. Mm-hmm. Um, can you have a club man who is also a flighty creative player? I can only think of Jack Grealish, who is a creative player and also can be associated as being a club man. There will be other examples, but we're talking about the earthy, um, kind of industrious hard yeah. worker, aren't we here? Yeah, I think Grealish is more a one-club man currently. He, he may soon, in fact, by the time this is released, he might not be. <laughs> the, um, it's, it's like a little parcel from the past. Um, but he's not, I don't think Grealish kind of defines, I think Villa fans see him as like an, their avatar on the pitch because he's a fan. But I don't think being a fan of that club is necessary to being a, a good club man. I don't think that's, that's what you need at all. Footballing avatar, brilliant. Mm. That's, that's a, I'd, I'd copyright that. Is Shearer too good a player? to be considered a club man because he would have been held in he's held in high esteem everywhere he's been do you know who's a good club, club man in that Newcastle team Rob Lee that's that that's is you're looking a at. good example that's sorry that. Shearer you're out Lee's in <laughs> Um, and finally, from Cameron Hill, who you might remember has been a steady contributor of managers most likely to over the weeks that we've been running that particular feature to fill content holes on the pod. He has uh, returned with this. Dear lockdown, but not outers. Firstly, I would like to voice my gratitude for your acknowledgement of my tireless efforts to produce new managers most likely to offerings on a consistent basis. Thanks, guys. I couldn't have done it without me. I've been trying to keep up the incredibly high standards I've set for myself, but the last few weeks have borne no fruit. Then... In a moment of inspiration, it hit me like the ball that clattered referee Daniele Orsato on the head during the Wolves-Severe match in the Europa League. Slightly dated now, but if you can remember it, it works. I have discovered the ultimate scenario, one which combines this glorious feature with the somewhat overlooked fact that this technically counts as a food podcast. The Manager's Restaurant. I will attempt to cast the eligible Premier League managers, no Dyche, Potter or Pearson to be seen here, in the roles of the various characters you may find working at a restaurant. For instance, the manager most likely to be the head chef who despises diners that make alterations to his clearly perfect menu, e.g. could I get the lasagna without the basil, is obviously Pep Guardiola. The somewhat awkward waiter who may try banter with the customers by making a joke only heard by you and the waiter, resulting in the pair of you feeling rather embarrassed, Oli Gunnar the barman who can actually banter with his patrons but only really likes pulling pints and hates making cocktails, Dean Smith, and the barman to whom he leaves the mixology, often done with trademark panache and prowess, Jurgen Klopp. My point is, says Cameron, this thing writes itself. The stubborn maitre d' restaurant manager has to be Jose Mourinho. The patissier, who believes the whole meal should consist of attractive dessert courses and constantly reminds his colleagues how much they underrated his capacity for cakes when he first started working there, Frank Lampard. The sous chef who has worked here previously was fired, set up another wildly popular restaurant in another town, not particularly famous for its good food scene before returning to the restaurant last year. Brendan Rogers. I could go on and on, but would not like to exhaust this absolutely fantastic idea quite just yet. So I would implore you fine fellows in the wider set piece Benny community to suggest other members of staff at this fine establishment. The only thing I'm having trouble with is the name of the restaurant. Any ideas? Also, if you're wondering how it is that I have so much time to think of these things, I'm not a waster. I just have a penchant for procrastination. Keep up the good work, especially you, Chunch. Sincerely, Cameron Hill. Uh, Well, I mean, the Premier Inn. (laughs) That's a a good start. The breakfast at the Premier Inn, that's surprisingly nice. Breakfast at the the Premier Inn, yeah. Oh, no, well, I thought you were pitching that as a... No, 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 just making a comment. The, the, um... The breakfast at the Premier Inn are good, but I would always go Holiday Inn Express for the breakfast myself. Yes, but double the price on the rooms. So, you know, where are you getting the value there? Well, it doesn't how matter. About, I'm not paying how, for it. You're not how paying, about, that's the difference. Pretta manager. Oh! oh. <laughs> Thank you and good night. 
Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. If you can better that for our manager's restaurant, let us know. Chinch is now going to disappear after celebrating that because he's got a, a whole sandwich to eat. Um, I think it was the great Rory Smith who wrote back in August 2020 that after all the concerns about how football matches without fans would suffer beyond the unique atmosphere that a stadium full of supporters provides, that the meaninglessness has not materialized. I quote those four words because they alliterate and anything alliterative gets a big thumbs up from me, but also because they are worth further discussion. We spent some time during the lockdown wondering how football, the homogenous football, would look, feel, and cope without fans. Do they provide not only that meaning for those in attendance, both in the stands and on the pitch, but also for those watching on television, whether emotionally invested or not? And as Rory says in his excellent New York Times on soccer newsletter, available for free every Friday, please subscribe, you sensed nothing different in the reactions of joy, for example, from Kylian Mbappe on PSG's progress to the Champions League final, despair on the face of Raheem Sterling when he realized the significance of his miss after Manchester City were beaten by Lyon. Nobody but those with a vested financial or logistical interest were in any of the stadia to host behind closed doors football. And yet, how much of what we saw looked, felt and sounded the same to those who were not there. So we're talking about fans, the lack thereof, and what we've realised about football while they're not there. Alliteration is my, is my least favourite rhetorical trick. And it's, it's my favourite, which goes to show how different we are. My favourite is Zugma. The joining together of two unrelated concepts. She, she, the example of Zudma is always, in, in your grammar textbooks, is always, she went home in a flood of tears and a taxi. That is Zudma. Two, same verb, two different concepts. My favourite. It's my favourite. That's just a little aside about, about it, grammar. It feels like a grammar mic drop, that. Uh, I just recommend it. I recommend it as a, for, not only for the way you write, just the way you talk. Uh, the, is the Chinch, thing... Can we just check Chinch is satisfied with that grammar? I mean, is that is that ten year old grammar? Eleven, Chinch. I mean, when when would you really do you think get a proper handle on that concept? Chinch is muted. Yeah, he's muted himself. There's a sandwich mute in place. Sorry, the the, the coffee machine was was going hell for leather. <laughs> um, you should really be able to grasp that concept somewhere between six and seven. <laughs> the thing that has really struck me over the last three months, and. I, I won't be banned on about it because it's, it's all written down. You've, you've read it. There'll be people who've, who, who are listening who've read it. If you haven't read it, it's a fairly simple idea. It really means a lot to the players. I think that I saw Danny Bater tweet during the Champions League latter stages, the finals tournament, about how you couldn't draw meaningful conclusions from it because it was clearly just business. And I think that there's a point at which the people who feel that way about football are maybe about football behind closed doors. Partly it's a false narrative, like football has chosen not to have any fans, that this is a natural sort of conclusion of, of the, the televisual commodification of the game, I guess. That they just thought, actually, we don't want anyone in the stadium. That's not what's happened. What's happened is there's been a major global pandemic and it's not allowed, but football wanted to carry on so that everyone involved could keep on earning a living. And that, that has been, and that's not just the players, that's everyone who works for the clubs, it's the clubs themselves. It's, it's an industry trying to find a way to survive as every other industry has done. The, the only difference is that football had to do a lot of its sort of contemplation in public. Um, and, and I get that a lot of, there, there is a huge sort of section of fans who feel disenfranchised by the fact that they're not there. But ultimately, what, what kind of struck me over the last three months watching the players, especially as things built to a conclusion and, and sort of prizes were handed out, um, is that the, all, the players ultimately are not playing for the fans. They, they say they are, and I think to some extent they feel they are, but they're not. They're playing for themselves. They're playing for their own ambitions, their own status, their own, their own dreams. The fact that they work incredibly hard to do the job that, that we all dream of doing. Um, and I think that almost in the silence and the stillness, you've seen that much more clearly, like how much those celebrations are not forced, they're not false. There's that interesting thing where players will still score a goal and run to the corner as though they were celebrating with fans, which I think is force of habit. But then you see the Bayern players lifting the Champions League, you see Neymar devastated after the final, you see Liverpool celebrating the, the Premier League trophy with, with the trophy, not even the game that they, that they won the title, just with the trophy. You see Leeds getting promoted, you see everywhere that there's been anything to celebrate, La Spezia, wherever it might be. Um, that, that the players, the delight, the ecstasy and the euphoria are all genuine. And it's because ultimately the fans, I think to the players, provide a focus for their joy, but the, the joy itself is rooted in something else or a lot of the joy itself is rooted in something else. It's rooted in their own achievement. 
You mentioned in your newsletter, Roy, about, about, about the fans playing the choric role, as in the old Greek chorus, who, who would um, give context to the action that had just taken place for the audience. They would give them an, a, a second opportunity just in case something had passed them by to be able to understand what had been happening on, on stage. And, and that choric role is almost something that we've realised that we have become reliant upon, but actually don't necessarily need as much because the players, as much as they might have thought that the, that the fans' choric role was important to reflect upon them, their glory, or just to, just to check they've done something good or something bad, or that the fans agree that they, they think something bad has happened and they want the fans to also pile onto that situation and, and to make it obvious to everybody, including those players. Is, is it not something that we gave too much credence to in terms of how we either enjoy it as fans vicariously as watchers on television or even as players do players not need that that kind of that mirror they don't need to know that those fans are supportive of what they do because it is the motivation that they find within themselves that matters the most yeah i, I mean i don't know i wonder whether the players have found that they i, I thought what herrera said was was interesting because i because it's true that football's much worse without fans in the stadium obviously everyone wants fans to be back in the stadiums but Surprised me a bit that he still feels so strongly about it, to be honest, because I, I think what what you've seen from the outside is very much that the that the inner motive that the motivation is is internal for the players that they're doing it, kind of whether the fans are there or not. Like the, the, what it means is the same to them. I had a, a friend of mine who's, who was a physio at Arsenal and he's now back at Liverpool um, say that when they won the FA Cup, it almost felt more intense the feelings because they were alone. It felt like a much more personal, private celebration rather than feeling as though you, you had to kind of go and show the trophy to the fans and and I think that's really interesting that the, the players have done it for themselves and I think that's in a way that's kind of that's really nice that it makes you realize that there is something that's maybe part of kind of why this this game happens what what the meaning of this game is that we we overlook far too much is kind of what it actually means to the players and I think without fans there we've had chance to see it now obviously it would be much better if we'd not had chance to see it just the fans have been in the stadium the whole time that would have been much better but sadly you know the world as it is as it is and we can't help it and I think in a way I've been quite heartened to see that the players take it so seriously. The the despair and disbelief of Raheem Sterling's miss both at the at the moment that it happened in the immediate aftermath of Manchester City's exit, I think perfectly encapsulated what Rory's been talking about because there was nothing that could have altered the emotions that he particularly and his teammates by association were going through. No amount of jeering or mocking from the stands could have made that matter any worse and probably no amount of a supportive response from City supporters to him for what he's otherwise done brilliantly could have made him feel any better at that point. Fans like to feel that they are participants in the game, but we're, we're observers, aren't we? Yes, atmosphere, I'm sure, can make a difference. Chinch can tell us how much, but you, you do hear the, the cliche of players, once they're over the white line, they, they block out what's going on around them. So what we've learned and what we've seen, and I did see that Danny Baker tweet that, that Rory was talking about, and there was a, he'd been banging on about that previously as well, and I was interested to see the response to it was a lot of people were like, come on, Danny, rein it in. I think actually it, it's been proved that, you know, yeah, nobody thought football was going to be the same or better without fans. But not only was it better than having no football at all, but it's actually not been as difficult to come to terms with as we might have thought. And those who were still agreeing with him, it really made it really interests me that they would probably see themselves as being proper football men, you know, defenders of football in its purest form. Well, football in its purest form, 95% of the time is played without fans watching anyway. So why the idea that elite football can't be played like that for a short time seems beyond me it's in, we're going to have to get used to it because even when what when fans start drifting back into the stadiums oh well this is not quite good enough we should just cancel football until stadiums can be 100 percent full full again well that would be the death of the game potentially so those who seem to feel that they are defending football's integrity by suggesting that this simply isn't good enough are on the same hand condemning it to something from which it might not recover can I just make a quick warning before Chief mm. speaks that, that Steve is is 
taunting me here? Does he knows that I'm trying to to make an effort not to do quite so many soliloquies and monologues because it's annoying for everybody. But he is he is a hit upon a subject that I think is is really really important and is really touchy and that I could speak about for hours. So I apologise for what's going to happen after Chimp speaks. <laughs> I just yeah I just want to come back. We talk about the origins of the game when football first appeared. It was a game for players. Over time, as football has developed, fans have been drawn in. If you couldn't play to the highest level, you watched a team. The tribal element of the game became a big part of it as well. So that's, have we not gone full circle to players just playing the game? So why are we surprised that actually they're just getting on and enjoying what they're really talented at with, with, with no fans there? Is that, is that a major surprise? Equally, so there's quite a lot of parallels that I've thought of. One is, is, is my own experiences of playing, and Hughes and Steve's will be the same, in front of literally nobody because no one would pay money to come and watch us. Quite a lot of those games were available to watch for free and people still didn't cut. People, and, those who were in the general vicinity of the pitch actually walked away. Actively. So you were shedding viewers. Yeah, yeah. I, you, I was being know. sick. <laughs> <laughs> but... It's not, you know, you, and it's obviously, it's, it's, like, it's like university level or whatever, it's not, or village level, it's not, it's not big time football, it's not a high standard, it's not Saturday league or anything, but you have moments that really mean a lot to you as a player, when, you, when your team wins a game, you, you, don't, you, you don't care the fact there's nobody watching there, like the, that moment, those moments become... Well, it's a game yeah. for players, Roy, you, you're enjoying, you're immersed in you, the game, so, well, that, so that's the main ingredient of football, is the players... And this is, this is where I'm going to become extremely boring. I can't remember what it was about, but early on in the debate about whether, whether football should restart or whether it should just wait for a vaccine or for the, for the coronavirus just to disappear or for everyone to die. The, the, I had a conversation on Twitter with somebody. I think based on Klopp, basically Jürgen Klopp said that all players start playing in front of nobody. That's, where, that's what players, until, until they become professionals and have played a lot of games, that is always the majority of their football has been played in front of nobody, whether it's youth level or academy level or reserve team football. There's no one there. It still means something to them. And I said that, that, you know, that, that that's true, that, that is, you know, most people spend a lot of time, most players spend a lot of time playing football in, in front of no crowds, and so they'll be used to it. And that I think, I think I must have drawn some sort of conclusion about, you know, we can say, you know, so this will still look, the game will still be the same. And I had a conversation with a West Ham fan on Twitter who said that his first experience of football wasn't playing. It was going to a West Ham game. And that's, I wasn't taken to Leeds as a, as a kid by my, by my dad. He used to have mates and stuff when I was a bit older. But I would have been playing football for seven years before I went to a, certainly to a professional football match because that wasn't part of my day-to-day existence. I'm not saying that one is, is better than the other. And I, I do wonder whether there's a bit of a, there's a bigger schism within fans that we, we tend to think of fans as a homogenous mass. And I don't think they are. I think there's, there's a difference between people who support a club and people who like football more broadly, as well as support. Most people would support a team, but people who will watch, you know, West Ham against Palace because it's on telly and people who would only watch the games of their teams and maybe the games that directly influence what happens to their team. Those are different groups. But I think there's also different, there's differences in terms of how people encounter football, whether they experience it as an activity that they do and they then sort of pick up an, ab- an admiration for people who do it really well, like Peter Atherton. Um, the, the, and so- <laughs> of all the fullbacks at Sheffield Wednesday, definitely him. And If Peter hears this, you're in big trouble, Rory. And John Everill, and um, not so much trouble with John. The nothing bad about John. The um, the <laughs> certainly from the waist up. <laughs> so childish. Come on. The edit the, point um, there. <laughs> but there's you know maybe there's a difference between people people who've who've experienced football first off as, as as something that they do and something that they watch there's an there's a difference between people who experience football as something that they go to and something they see on tv and we should all this is this has been lost massively is that 99.99999% of people consume all of their football on television because this is the greatest cultural phenomenon of the 20th and 21st century millions and millions and millions of people follow it and stadiums hold what at most 90,000 people most people never get to go to a game the vast majority of football fans never get to go to a game it doesn't make them bad fans it maybe just means that they're born in the wrong place or that they don't have enough money or that they they, they happen to be born at a time when there's already a waiting list of 20,000 people for tickets there's this which gets me onto the main thing, which is I think we probably need to, at some point, maybe not today, 
have a conversation about about this hierarchy of fandom because what struck me about a lot of the people who have not been able to reconcile themselves with with what football's new normal temporary new normal looks like and our good friend john nicholson at football 365 has has written a lot really eloquently about this um is that ultimately i think that what to me is it lies at the root of their objections is is a belief that the ed's about to come in that the central thing that makes football authentic is their presence at the game and that if they're not there then it cannot be authentic and i think there's a lot i'm not saying that that's that john's necessarily guilty of that but i think there's a lot of people for whom that is what football should be is that football should happen but with them then and there's a real danger there that we're not we're not taking a, a sufficiently broad kind of picture of what football fandom is not just in terms of how people follow it remotely or in person but also it tends to be and you find this with a lot of the organized fan movements in europe it tends to be a specific type of fan that gets to speak for all fans and it's generally middle-aged white men who speak for what fans so in germany where you've got this big conversation about whether you should play games on mondays or not the organized fan movement which is really powerful and does a lot of good and is definitely a, a net positive for german football they are fans of a certain stripe, fans of a certain age, fans of a certain, I guess, kind of class demographic, fans of a certain tradition. It, it's not as open as, as, it's not as broad a spectrum as you'd like it to be. It's the same with a lot of people who feel that they are the true defenders of football fandom's flame. They tend to be drawn from a specific group. And we tend to quote them and cite them and look to them as the kind of moral leaders but I'm not sure that's good enough. I think that it leads to a fetishization of the, of the match-going fan as being somehow superior, which is an interesting subject in itself, but it also leads to a disenfranchisement of everybody else and a belief that unless you are against modern football and you want a return to standing terraces and you want this and you want that and you, you want the kind of the, the orthodoxies that they, that they advocate, that you are a bad fan, but they are advocating orthodoxies that A, stem from their own experience, and B, might be exclusionary to other, other groups who are not part of that one select demographic. So we've, we've spoken about the fact that there is a selfishness among players that perhaps we had forgotten about, but we're actually quite pleased about, that, that, we, that we understand why, fan, uh, understand why players uh, might be motivated by their own concerns a little bit more than pleasing others, which is by no means a criticism. It's, it's as you said, Rory, it's actually quite heartening to know that 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 still motivates them in the same way but are we also then saying on the other side of the argument that there is that having no fans in these games and some games of very little standing and some games of incredibly important standing that actually there is a selfishness among some fans that has been highlighted and perhaps whether they self-aggrandize or not we have come to believe that they don't have as much value as perhaps they themselves believe they have no, it's not that they don't have value, they have massive value, but I just don't know if, if, if their experience and their belief is necessarily as representative as it is portrayed as being. Because the other thing about the hierarchy that will be interesting over the coming weeks is that if fans are allowed at 15, 20, 25, 30% capacity, you have to, and, and for example, if you have um, season ticket holders more than that amount um, in terms of percentage of your capacity, there will be arguments within that hierarchy and the upper echelons of that hierarchy, those match-going fans, those people that you've just described, Roy, who will be arguing amongst themselves even about how much value they have in terms of whether they should be getting an opportunity to go to the stadium. And there'll be arguments, I'd imagine, from within that group of fans as well, who will also say, well, they don't believe that there should be press going if it means that fans can't go or as many fans as possible can't go. So that will we see that within, even within that, that kind of the, that stratosphere, if you like, will we have subdivisions therein, which will be, lead to even further uh, kind of conversations about how important certain fans are above and beyond others. Yeah. And I wonder whether uh, to some extent it is based in, and, I, and this isn't said really to be derogatory or pejorative, but I do wonder whether a lot of it is basically a lot of the objection isn't fans should be allowed in. I do wonder how much of it is. I should be there. Mm -hmm. For a lot of match-going fans, the, the match itself is just part of the day's experience, isn't it? It's what you do before and after the game. So it's not just the going to the game that has been taken away, um, which perhaps leads to this view that football without fans is nothing. It's the cultural experience of 
escaping from maybe the day-to-day grind that once a week you get to experience meeting up with your mates, few drinks, bit of food beforehand, go to the match, something similar afterwards, stagger home late, you know, either high on the euphoria of a, a good day out and success for your team or having drowned your sorrows. And I think it's perfectly acceptable for people to feel as though it is not entirely fair that that experience is beyond their grasp at the moment. But you, you can't say, well, we, we cannot have football until you can have the full package. There has to be some sort of compromise. We are making compromises in every single facet of our lives. And something that sport has, you know, because cricket's demonstrating it at the moment with the, with the test matches that England have been involved in. Sport can demonstrate and show a new way to do things. It has been entrusted with this responsibility. It is a gift that has been given to elite level sport to, to show what might be possible with the new normal. It is a gift it has to protect and preserve and, and be responsible with. And so far it has proved that to be the case. And having demonstrated that you can get live sport back on without fans, it, it will probably be given the opportunity ahead of other things to enable spectators to come back in. And that will offer a pathway to all sorts of other aspects of life as well. There is value in, in, in fans being there. That is um, uh, something that we would not dispute for even a moment. This, this conversation is taking place in the context of understanding that, but uh, perhaps just thinking about the nuances of what has proved to be the case that perhaps we weren't expecting prior to fans not being allowed to come to the game. So we, everybody should take it in that context, but it is at least interesting to understand how much we have learned over the course of last week. Uh, d- d- to the point that when the Premier League resumes in, in uh, a week or so's time and, and all those other leagues that start on the 12th of September, we are going to be expecting something completely different at the restart of the Premier League once again. We're, our expectations have been completely reset, have they not? Yes, although I, I do wonder how many... I, I suspect there's a subset of fans and observers who had not quite grasped the idea in the height of lockdown, as, as we kind of all got used to what kind of 2020 might hold longer term, that that August and September were not going to be months where you could be like, right, let's get 76,000 back into Old Trafford. I think, I, th- I, I do wonder funnily enough whether the start of the season might be quite deflating for a lot of people. And you wait, look, you wait for announced there's going to be 30% fans at the Super Cup final, which I think is September the 24th. Uh, I think the government, I lose, I lose track a bit of what the British government are doing, which is something that also happens to the British government. Um, <laughs> but the, um, they, they've said, I think that they're going to run test events. Brighton, Brighton got a test, a test day, a test event. But, it, you know, it, it's likely that certainly for the rest of the year, I guess, that we're not going to have stadiums at even half capacity. It will be, it will be kind of 20, 30%. And that'll be better than, than nothing. And I, I remember seeing, I think a few, a, a few weeks or months ago in this weird COVID time that, People saying that you know even getting five ten thousand into a stadium might actually look slightly worse than having an empty stadium, but I think there's another beggars can't be choosers. Ten thousand people still quite a lot of people in one place. They can make a decent bit of noise. They can react to a game. They can give us that kind of avatar that we need to say right that's important. That's a foul. That's not throwing all that stuff. Um, the so that would be a benefit, but it will be really slow going. There's a really interesting question about the fact they're talking about not broadcasting every game. Does that mean you've got games that are happening with literally nobody watching and and that i think is philosophically fascinating <laughs> does it does it actually happen well it, it does make you think like what is the purpose of this like this is, football ultimately is the form isn't is an arm of the entertainment industry but if no one's allowed to watch it then and i presume that even abroad it won't necessarily well obviously they can watch far more games than we can here but i assume that if they're kicking off games if they're not broadcasting every game they will kick some of the games off at the same time which means potentially not every game will be broadcast, say in the states or in Asia. Which no, is that, no, no. You, there's always there's always a broadcast around a Premier League game. Right. So there's always that, that will be available. In, there's yeah. There's always a full a, a full broadcast setup around Premier League but matches. Does, does that mean if you get a, a run of like eight games kicking, or not? It's never eight, but like six games, three o'clock on a Saturday. Will will each one of those games be on TV somewhere in the world? You, the, the ability to watch it live would be available somewhere in the world. And those, you know, well, the football first thing that Sky run mm. 
on a Saturday evening is effectively the slightly cut down version of those those live games where you get your match choice, choose what you want to watch. So even even in the UK, you might not be able to watch them live, but within five hours of kicking off, you'll be able to watch a very, very large chunk. And, and but I think without club, that, club that... TV channels will also be able to do that as well. So MUTV will, will run it at midnight, Liverpool TV yeah, yeah. will run, run it at midnight. So, so but no one's watching it live. Nobody's, well, there will be, in territories, basically, they have a choice. Most territories in the world have a choice of which game to watch. If, right. Should they have the ability to do so with the, the television that they have, they will be able to watch whichever game they want to. They are all being provided on that world feed and, and there is a selection yeah. to be made by, by the viewer. But yeah, that will massively dilute the possibility, but it will still have fans on it. With with the combination of empty stadiums and or and empty stadiums for a little bit, a little bit, and then probably really reduced capacity stadiums for some time, and without that sense of like a festival of football of games on every day, you know, there was that spell in June and July where all four where there were four major leagues playing, there was football constantly on television. Without that sense of carnival, that kind of sense of difference, I do wonder whether a lot of people might find that. I think the start of this season, this coming season, will be a lot less exciting than the restart of last season. I think there will not be that sense of, thank God it's back. As a result of no fans being allowed in stadiums, clearly we have spent uh, 100% of our time, apart from those of us lucky enough to go to games, we have spent 100% of our time consuming football on television, which would normally not be the case for most fans who can go to a game, but it's also not necessarily normally the case for the four of us. But Chinch, you've been the one who's been to the most games. Have you got to a stage now where your expectations have changed significantly enough that you are used to not having fans there and has the broadcasting that you've been a part of now become so kind of set in its ways if you like or it's it's changed its sense of what the expectations are to now be a new normal and i promise what do you mean by expectations that. would you what, because what do you mean by my expectations you're, you're having fake fake crowd noise being pumped into your ears yeah yeah. Um, so you've got used to how that sounds to you. Um, five but that's to, to enable me to, to do the job. It's not necessarily for any other reason than I, I need no, to hear a crowd. But you're, you're one person and there are clearly millions and to, to, your, to your game, several hundred people watching. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It double watching, sometimes. Yeah. And they, they have an opportunity to put, to put that crowd noise on. And obviously it mm. is the initial offering by both Sky and BT that, that on their main channel they have uh, that crowd noise. It's got to a stage now, certainly from my point of view, where I'm watching the only time that the crowd noise enters my mind as being fake is when it's noticeably poorly done, which actually doesn't happen very much anymore. And it's worth mentioning that the Champions League uh, latter stages, the, the person responsible for the crowd noise, whether it was done centrally by UEFA or by the individual broadcasters, did an excellent job of providing the right kind of atmosphere. It didn't feel like somebody with a soundboard reacting uh, to each and every event. It was, it was incredibly well done. And that is part of the reason why I'm asking this question, Chinch. Mm. We have now got used as consumers to watching the game with crowd noise on. If you have five to 10,000 people inside a stadium, are they going to drop the crowd noise and just have <laughs> that echoey few hundred thousand, a few hundred or few thousand people inside that stadium? Because that is not the same uh, offering and it is not the same thing to consume. So from your point of view, expectations, have they changed to the point that you probably want it to continue as is yeah. or go back to full and not have anywhere in between but it's, it's how long it's going to take to get between five and ten thousand people back into a stadium because clearly that's that's not going to be the first step is it yeah the, the noise or, or, or lack of noise that those people will make it seems a, a fair chunk of five hundred thousand people you think well they can make a lot of noise but spread out over a stadium which they will be i, I still feel that they'll They'll want the fans back in. Again, it's a stepping stone to, to getting more and more fans back in, but the noise will presumably still be played. We, we've not had any discussions about this because really I, I'm concentrating on the work that I'm there to do. So I'm not really watching the game as a fan. I'm not sat at home watching it. I've watched a few games at home and I do have the sound on, but I tend to, I tend to hear it without hearing it, which is what I do when I'm broadcasting as well. So when I'm there watching it, I'm just purely involved. I've, I've just forgotten that there's no fans there. That's my After point. about two or three That's games, it basically all my focus was on, and I wonder whether this would happen, whether you'd find as a broadcaster, you'd have the ability to focus more on the game that's in front of you. And I think that, that is natural when you haven't got all the distractions of directors showing who's in the crowd and everything else. It's purely what's happening on the pitch. That is the job that we're there to do as well. And also we can be more intensive in our analysis of games so people back home can hopefully understand a lot more because we're working that much more 
intensely so we can maybe get our point across to the to the viewers. After about three games, I definitely saw the players seem a lot more comfortable, that the tempo and the standard of the games improved. And I just basically forgot that there weren't any fans in the stadium. I, I just I just watch what I watched. And again, I've got to do my job. I'm not there. If I was there as a fan, I'd probably be looking around thinking, oh, it's terrible. There's nobody in here. Wouldn't it be great to have a thousand people? That would be very different. But I'm not there for that reason. I'm there to work and to broadcast and to cover the game and hopefully give the viewers a good experience as well. So it's, it's not saying that, you know, of course I want fans back in the stadium safely, but actually it didn't make a huge amount of difference to the work that I did. I think it actually made me focus even more on what was going on. So if we're saying that players have essentially forgotten that fans aren't there because they are reacting in the same way in terms of their self-motivation their, and their in- emotional engagement with what, with what matters to them. I don't, is what I don't, think, I don't think they've forgotten they're not there. I think they just, it hasn't inhibited the meaning. They've got used, they've got used to playing it's without got, them. Right. It, so it just takes time it, to get to two or three games. Now they've got used to playing with that. And that's, it's getting used to that new environment. Once they get, they'll find it difficult when fans come back in. If you were to then say, right, we're going to fill a stadium and play a game tomorrow and you had an empty stadium they'll find it in reverse will find it tricky. Be, suddenly all the noise will be back in there'll be this really interesting situation where where the first weekend before before like the stadiums are full again and the players will be saying oh it's really exciting can't wait it's brilliant to be back with our public and then like West Ham would have won down early doors to Palace <laughs> at, the, at the Olympic Stadium or whatever it's called and there'll just be this cascade of boos and <laughs> all these all these fans who've been saying, oh, we just, we just want to get back to the game, just desperate to see the football again. It's not real without us there, just sort of shouting and screaming at these players, saying how much they hate them and how they should be but See, I wonder whether that does play a part, Rory, because, again, not all teams are as, as dominant as Liverpool and Man City and they win and win and win, regardless of where they play. There are teams, It's horrible when you're playing in front of your own supporters, especially at home if you go a goal. That, you can feel, and that actually has more of an effect on you than when they're, they're cheering you because you can feel that weight on your shoulders. So actually, in many ways, that's why the players would probably say, well, I'm good at this game. I enjoy this game. I can just concentrate without having these negatives. Apart from my coach screaming at me, telling me I'm doing something wrong, I'm not getting 10,000 people doing the same. But also be really interesting to see whether it changes the fans' relationship with the players because you can't, you can't have spent six, nine months saying how, how terrible it is that, that fans aren't allowed in to support their team and then within 15 minutes be like, well, you're useless, get out! Yeah, but they will do, <laughs> won't they? Yeah, they will, of course they will. will. They? Course they, will. Gonna... They, don't, they, want to, they want to be there to slag the players off. As we're oh, yes. I was going to say that by that point, West Ham will have signed Ander Herrera and afterwards he'll be saying having fans back in is really sh- um, in what, the about the, what about fans turning on each other? Like, you don't deserve to be part of the 20%. <laughs> yes, exactly. Give your ticket. Let someone else in who really wants to get right in at the play. Is this going to be one of the major problems? These lines yes. that could be drawn between well, well, who deserves to be back in that stadium first? It's already happening on Twitter. It's already happening on Twitter. There are those who, who say, I don't want those people to get in because I... I believe that that will not be the, 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 the people that should be rewarded with an opportunity to watch the game. But I was just going to say that and what will change forgotten that fans aren't there to not noticing anymore that fans yeah. aren't there. So, so players have uh, got to the stage where they're not noticing anymore that fans aren't there. Broadcasters have got to the stage where they are not noticing anymore that fans aren't there. Fans watching on the television consuming the work of those broadcasters have got to the stage that they aren't aware necessarily about fans not being there because they're hearing the fans themselves. So we got to a stage where the three most important kind of constituents of football have got used to fans not being there. And this is the whole point I'm trying to make about completely changed expectations. If we're going to incrementally build back up, is that actually going to be something that discombobulates us even more than the original reducing to nothing in terms of having supporters there? Well, you're going to need, the broadcasters are going to need an additional audio option. You're going to need stadium noise, mix of stadium noise and crowd effects mm. and crowd effects. It'll be a bit like, do you want rice, chips or a mixture of rice and chips? So I that's we all agree. Uh, that might be having 60 minutes into a game. I was probably thinking I'll have a mixture. I'll have a mixture at, uh, when I get home. Yeah. But you know what? Chinch is right. I think the more, the more immersed you are, and, and we have been blessed to have had the opportunity to go to games at this time, and that we are not unaware of the privileged position that that is. But I think the more immersed you are in the game, the quicker you have got used to not having supporters there. So I've certainly found when I've been doing a commentary, I haven't noticed really the stadium being empty. Whereas doing a radio game where, where you're just doing updates, then I think it has been more obvious on those occasions because 
you are doing a 30 second update every sort of 10 minutes or so. So you just become a little bit more aware that the usual ebb and flow of noise around you is, is not as it should be. The other thing that's really interesting, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm sort of dim diminishing fans, is that the, there was this perception that, that a lot of the, the games that were broadcast were really bad because the fans weren't there. I think there's going to be like February, hopefully, when the stadiums are full again, but Crystal Palace against Burnley is on TV because, because Sky have to show it to fulfil their commitments. We're all going to realise that actually quite a lot of football is just quite bad all of the time. And that it's not, it, that just having a full stadium doesn't prevent a game being dreadful. I am convinced that the games that you have been highlighting ever since June, which are used by you, Rory, to typify a terrible game of football, I'm convinced this next season they are going to be humdingers. Crystal yeah. Palace against Burnley, Burnley against West Ham, Crystal Palace against West Ham. Uh, those <laughs> the combination those of three games are going to be brilliant. 43 goals between those three games. Do you feel that fans kind of wanted football to be crap? Some did. Not there. Some but did. Not, but not the vast majority. They were just, just the, biding their time. And I mean, as, as you, you can't speak for all of them, but for, for, it's a mass, massive group of people who think in really different ways, obviously. But I think there was, there was some who, for whom, the, as Steve mentioned earlier, that the idea that football shouldn't happen until they were back actually kind of illustrates their relationship with the game, what, who they think is central to the drama. And it's, it's not the players or the teams, it's them. But also, I think there's been a big, there was, a, there was a, a big constituency early on who thought it will be rubbish without fans, who has, which, sorry, which has very quietly, like the rest of us, got used to the idea and thought, do you know what, it's not as good as it, is, as it can be without fans, it's not as good as it should be, but it's fine. It's fi it is fine without fans, you can cope for a bit. I wouldn't, if, if it stayed like this for 20 years, then it would be a much less popular pastime. But it's it still hold it can still draw you in, it can still compel you with an empty stadium. And as we said earlier, two two different types of selfishness and and, and one yeah. perhaps reflects quite well on that constituency and, and the other one doesn't necessarily reflect quite so well. And my question is, having just got used to a new normal, and I said I wouldn't use the phrase uh, again, I'm gonna use it many times now, is that what happens when that new normal makes way for an even newer normal, which then takes us as a transition towards what the old normal was so you know we're going to have to come up with a new phrase um chinch has been quarantined over the last couple of weeks uh, because he went to portugal at just the wrong time prior to portugal Idiot. being <laughs> gifted back an opportunity to have the air bridge uh, to the uk so you chinch, could still be there chinch you could still it. be stop sunning it. yourself on the Two beach days. i did i did the i did the responsible thing i knew i had to work so I thought, right, I'll have my break and I'll build a two-week quarantine in because that dems the rules. So I was just, you know, I, I did what... And then two days after I get home, they, they lift. They, they lift it and say, yeah, you're completely fine. Nikki was saying, right, that, that means we're okay as well. And I said, no, no, I don't think it does. Right, we're off, come on, we're going out. No, we're not, we're not, we're going to get arrested. I can't get arrested, I'm too high profile. Yeah, they'd, they'd notice straight away. Uh, but you have been quarantined, and as a result of that, nothing's happened to you. So you don't have a, a, a soccer story, but you do, Chinch. Mm -hmm. And bearing in mind the two questions that have been posed so far in this conversation have been about whether avocado is a fruit and whether you'd like rice chips or rice and chips. Mm. I hope that the questions that you're going to now pose to the listeners, Chinch, have um, a little bit more value. Uh, than those just mentioned. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get your hopes up particularly. So how are we, we going to work this? Because you've asked me these suckers, how, how interesting a life do you think I've... I, I feel I've done incredibly well to possibly eke out. I must have done over 100 stories. Yeah. And they're all different. Could you seriously have come up with 100 relatively interesting things about your life? And you've, you've, you know, you're men of the world, apart from you. So you could have... Could you have done that? I think I've done well to get this far. Well, so it, that's it, why I came up with this quiz and thought, I'm struggling. I've, I'm in quarantine. I'm just going to come up with a quiz and see how, how much people have actually been listening to what I've been saying. To an, to an extent, Chinch, you've come up with one story, which was needless to say, Chinch had the last laugh. <laughs> 140 times. Although Rory only has but three stories know, that I? is I repeated know. over and over again. Yeah, we just get yeah, the same yeah. story and you don't realise you've told them before. At least Chinch uh, has an opportunity to at least not repeat himself. So how, how are we going to... I've got eight or nine questions here. I don't want to go too far into it. How, how are we going to work this? Who, who's this for? This is very simple. This is, this is essentially what Ewan Hay gave us an opportunity to do. He provided content, but underlining that content was the fact that people could go back and listen to previous episodes yes. uh, of Set Piece Menu. He, he was our tool. Now, Chinch, you provide us with a different 
tool, uh, which is to ask questions about previous soccer stories, giving an opportunity for those who don't know the answer to go back and listen, to either ah. find out the answer and let us know, yep. or alternatively, yep. just play along. So if you know the answer, then you will be able to collate them over the course, what do you say, eight or nine questions, send yep. the answers to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. And for all those people who get all of them right, I promise a shout out on set piece menu next week. Even if it's 150, please God, can it not be 150? <laughs> but we will give you a shout out on next week's set piece menu. If you send all eight or nine, depending on what Chinch decides at the end, correct answers to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Okay. If, if Sorry, you Steve, can, I was just going to say, if you can name the episode that the original detail is from, oh, wow. then she will also play you a fanfare as well as giving you a shout out. If that fanfare um, is not copyrighted by anybody, but I must admit it would help my spreadsheet because there's quite a few gaps on Soccer Story on the uh, list of podcast episodes because I've forgotten myself in which episode Chinch has told a particular story about somebody's undercrackers. Okay, do you want me to undercrackers? That's interesting. Uh, do you want me to, to crack on? Yes, please do. Nice and okay. quickly, Chinch. Thank you. So, first question Name the world class talent who shares my birthday of the 5th of February. And there's a couple of bonus points here. There's a couple of extra, a couple of players. There's probably four or five. Make up a decent five aside team of people that, famous players that are born on my birthday. But there's one superstar. There's two or three others that are slightly below me. Um, so the, the, obviously get the superstar and then maybe bonus points for another couple if you can get those as well. So that's question one. Question two, this is talking about uh, coaches that I've, I'll say played for, but I've been involved with. So which coach uh, loved to travel on a coach in just his underpants? Which coach loved to sunbathe at the Everton training ground post-training? And which coach loved a training top with his sleeve just kind of pushed halfway up between his wrist and his elbow? Very elegant, but not many people do that these days, do they? It's either down to the wrist or up to the elbow, but he used to push it just halfway just to look super cool. So there's three coaches there. Not since Miami Vice has that been cool. Um, so, so that might give you an idea. Yeah, three so three-parter number two is a three-parter. So three names there. Question three. Can you name the make and the color of the boots which I did my only promotional photo shoot for? With a face like this, it's, it's no wonder I only did one. But what was the make of boots and what color were those boots? So that's a two-parter again. Question four. Along with myself, who was accused of writing an obscenity 20 foot high in the snow at Sheffield Wednesday's training ground this is quite a good this is probably my favorite soccer story so if you don't get this one you might as well give up you might as well give up question five name these sheffield wednesday stars a player who loved to put a little bit too much on his passes he didn't have to do but he did it just to make you look stupid mm. which sheffield wednesday star had a goalpost blow over and crack him on the head and which Sheffield Wednesday star liked to train with his laces undone? He wasn't that good, but he clearly thought that he was and trained with his laces undone. That's slight, maybe tricky. Slightly tricky, those. That's a tricky question, isn't it? The you second one, I'm not sure I can remember. Yeah, I don't know the second the, one. Yeah. yeah, I told the story of a goalpost blowing over and cracking. It's a bit of a clue. The goalposts fell on him. But anyway, I'm sure you'll get there in the end. And another one about Everton players, this one about Everton players. Who were Nookie Bear... Who was jigsaw because he fell to pieces in the box? <laughs> and who used to practice goal celebrations with jigsaw behind the back of the gym at Everton's training grounds? So there's three players there, Nookie Bear, Jigsaw, and who was it that used to practice goal celebrations with aforementioned jigsaw? <laughs> Next question. Name the two makes of car that I've used in my stories. One had all its wheels stolen from underneath my bedroom window. And the other one was pockmarked after I continually drove it from Manchester to Sheffield when I played at Sheffield Wednesday. So two makes of car, one without its wheels, and one got completely battered by the lorries that I used to go behind driving over to Sheffield. On which significant birthday did I wear the laughable combination of a pinstripe suit, a black vest top, and a crucifix necklace? Oh my God. Yes. What? I know. You might I must admit, I did this story. I did this story. You have to troll back and find it. What significant birthday did I dress in that magnificent fashion? What uh, number are we at? What number are we uh, at? This is where we're going. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Is this number nine? This is quite a poignant one. This is a poignant one. I got a bit of, bit of humor, a bit of fun in there. 
What did my dear old dad say to me when I asked him whether he wanted to come to Wembley and watch his son, his youngest son, represent his country? Do you remember I what do, my yeah. father's words were to me? It's a poignant one, a very sad one. But that's, I just thought, again, so I throw in an extra one? I'll, actually, because Nikki's not in the room, I can talk about the former Mrs. H. I'll throw in a question about her. Which band's lead singer did the former Mrs. H say on a drunken night out and we met them post-gig? Ooh, you're a bit small for a rock star. Which band's lead singer did the former Mrs. H say that to? Her first line to him, he just turned and walked away. So there we go. Nine, ten questions there. So you can troll back, find the answers, and yeah, I think someone will get them all. Surely someone will get them all. Uh, everybody who does get them all, and there are multi-parts, there's about 18. Uh, I know, yeah, it's a big quiz. <laughs> it's not it's a like, big quiz, is it? It's a big quiz. It's a big quiz. It's not a big quiz. It's football fun, to... the Soccer Story edition. We've been sat listening to you um, list the questions for about 25 minutes. <laughs> but what's the sad thing is, Roy, it's less of a quiz when I mentioned my dad, you went, yep, yeah, no, that one. You, the poignant <laughs> one, you remember the really sad one, don't you? Because I'm a... all the hilarious ones. I'm, I'm not... I'm not invested in our friendship for the banter change. I'm invested because of the emotion and the love. Oh, I see. Okay. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Uh, so Chinch will mark your scorecards if you send them to setpiecemenu at gmail.com indeed any correspondence to setpiecemenu at gmail.com please subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule thank you to Rory, Andy and Stephen to you all for listening we'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed also next week by the way SPM PLPL returns can too I, can soon I, can I just say if we need, do we need a, a tiebreaker I've got a tiebreaker question as well. No, because they're just getting a shout-out, Chinch. Don't overcomplicate things. No, You've already what added if causes and subclauses. Are you just going to give a shout-out to two people or three people or four people? That's not the point of the quiz. It's one person. A tiebreaker can be Googled. What size are my feet? That can probably be Googled. Ah, stumped you all. Stumped you well, all. I, I know the answer. No, you don't. Well, basically, on, on a Zoom screen, which provides a quarter of the size of everybody else's screen, I can do that and say that's to scale. Is that my foot? That is indeed your foot. Is it? Yeah, that's about right. Small. <laughs> Small is, is his Tiny, tiny feet. And he's balancing on the ends of a hose pipe. <laughs> Chinch is a ballerina constantly in second position. Foot footballers generally have quite small feet, don't they? Uh... Coming up on next week, set piece Paul, I think Paul Lake. <laughs> Paul Lake had the biggest feet in football I'd ever seen. They must have been about a size 13. Really? Yeah, and he, he was tallish. He was tall. Yes, they were. They were. He had enormous feet.